संसार के सारे मेहनत कश खेतों से मिलों से निकलेंगे बेघर बेदर बेबस इंसान तरीक बिलों से निकलेंगे दुनिया अमान और खुशहाली से फूलों से सजाई जाएगी वो सुबह हमी से आएगी वो सुबह हमी से आएगी दिस इज द फाइनल वर्स ऑफ द पोएम वो सुबह कभी तो आएगी बाई सहीर लुधियानवी द पोएम इज एन ओड टू अस द फ्यूचर वी वॉन्ट एंड हाउ वी बिल्ड इट द स्टोरी ऑफ इंडिया इज अ स्टोरी ऑफ ट्राइम्फ इट्स ऑल्सो अ स्टोरी ऑफ पेन यू कॉन्ट रियली सेलिब्रेट इंडिया विदाउट रिमेंबरिंग द फ्रीडम मूवमेंट एंड एवरीथिंग दैट कम्स विद इट दिस वीक we celebrate both the pakistani independence day on 14th august and the indian independence day on 15th august now i know that half the people listening to this podcast are already planning their trips to goa tomorrow but consider what's happening in this country now with the abrogation of article 370 since the amendment was announced the pakistan government has suspended trade ties with india expelled the indian high commissioner and recalled its own high commissioner It's now trying to take the issue to the United Nations Security Council. Hello and welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan. I don't know if you've lived in Kashmir or have strong opinions about it, but now would be a good time to take a good look at the way we talk about things about which we differ. It's a good time to talk about democracy. and state power and national security but we aren't really talking to each other are we we're shouting into an abyss on twitter and whatsapp so i thought now would be a good time to talk about peace what does it constitute how can we teach it and how can we be better citizens advocating for peace my guest for today is someone who spent countless hours in and out of classrooms talking about peace chintan modi is an educator writer and peace builder He's a fellow with the Pragna Trust on their Education for Peace initiative. He has worked with Seeds of Peace and the UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development. Chintan has represented India at peace building forums in Nepal, Pakistan, USA, Saudi Arabia and Germany. So I decided to talk to him about peace building and what the other side of the border looks like. But before we delve into the conversation, let's take a short break. Hey everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You know, I have been asking you guys to do this. I think some of you are, but some of you aren't. Have you told your best friend about your favorite podcast? Please make sure you do that as well. You are our ambassadors. If you don't go out and evangelize on our behalf, who's going to do it? So please go out and tell somebody about the podcast you're listening to. If you think there's somebody who would enjoy it, refer them to IVM Podcast and tell them about all the stuff that they can find on our app or on our website or, you know, Spotify, Savan, everywhere you're listening to podcasts, right? Just give it a shot. Also, guys, I'm going to be at Podcast Movement the coming week from the 13th to 16th of August. Podcast Movement is a conference in Orlando where we're going to be doing all kinds of podcasty stuff. So check it out. If you're in the area, please do come by and say hi. If you're not in the area, you can follow along with me by following, I guess, my social media in this case is Doshi Amit on most things. On the scene and the unseen, Amit Verma is joined by Pratik Sinha, co-founder of Alt News. They speak about living in the era of fake news, the far-reaching consequences of fake news, and the best way to debunk fake news. The English Premier League has begun, and football twaddle is back with a new season. This season, they are introducing a fantasy league episode, which airs every Thursday, along with regular episodes on Tuesday. Make sure you tune into both of them. 
On the last episode of this season of the Sponge Podcast, host Ambi Parmeshwaran talks about learning lessons from simple people and shares the story of Goosebuy. On Tech Careers in the New, presented by Accenture, Sheila Ditya is joined by Gopali Contractor, Managing Director, Artificial Intelligence at Accenture. They talk about AI, ways to demystify it, its practical applications, and the career opportunities in this field. Check it out. I think you'll like this show. On Pulia Bazi, the Hindi policy podcast, host Saurabh and Pranay talk to Mihir Mahajan, a patent strategy expert about intellectual property rights. On the origin of things, Chuck narrates a brand origin story that involves priests, traders, and education. Will you be able to guess the brand before Chuck reveals it? Find out by tuning in. On The Habit Coach, Ashton is joined by nutrition and lifestyle coach Rashi Malhotra. They talk about food substitutes and recipes for a healthy life. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan and I'm talking to Chintan Modi about peace building and Pakistan. Hi Chintan, welcome to States of Anarchy. Hi Hamsini, thank you for having me here. So, in international relations, we sort of believe that the world is anarchical. Even like the name of this show, States of Anarchy, sort of talks about how um, states as primary actors deal with this system that primarily pits them against each other, right? Um, so Thomas Hobbes famously said, the life of man is short, nasty, brutal, solitary, and just like a horrible place to be in. Um, against the backdrop of all of this, how would you define peace? That's an interesting question. I think I would define peace differently at different times. Okay. Um, right now, I think uh, peace is an alternative to violence. Hmm. Uh, not really the absence of violence, but a conscious choice one makes to disengage from violence. Hmm. So what you're saying is it's not just the absence of war, hmm. um, but there are other conditions that would mean that it's not peaceful? Would that make so sense? Since we're talking Hobbes, maybe I should bring in a theorist. Okay. <laughs> Johan Galtung, hmm. and uh, he talks about positive peace and negative peace, which has okay. been criticized a bit, but I think it offers... Um, good analytical framework. So when one talks about negative peace, one talks in terms of peace being the absence of war or violent Mm -hmm. conflict. When one speaks of positive peace, it's more about conditions that would enable equality, justice, freedom, other values that one thinks of as important. So then one is talking not only about physical harm caused to people, but Mm -hmm. uh, structural and cultural violence. All right. And uh, what can be done to remove those That sounds like a fair definition to me. And how would you sort of describe what peace building is? Because I know that you identify as someone who works in peace building, right? Yes. So what is peace building? I think the word peace building really comes from um, a particular historical trajectory. Okay. There was a time when one spoke of... uh, conflict management and then the lingo was conflict resolution and then one eventually moved to conflict transformation and I think peace building is most closely linked to that mm. where the people or the entities ensuring peace are not only the people at the top mm. not only the heads of state but um, various networks of stakeholders that are involved in a conflict so here for example if we take took the example of India and Pakistan mm. Imran Khan and Narendra Modi mm are not the only actors that are responsible for maintaining peace or building peace. But the people involved are journalists from both sides, Mm. um, educators from both sides who teach the history of the subcontinent, um, diplomats, of course, that are engaging in official um, lines of dialogue, but also business people from both sides Mm. that would uh, 
sort of lobby for certain policies related to trade between both countries. So I think peace building is um, an approach to looking at um, how uh, various categories of people mm-hmm. can participate in uh, improving ties between countries. Mm-hmm. I, for one, am very relieved to hear that Imran Khan and Narendra Modi are not the only two stakeholders of peace building. Some might even argue that they have nothing to do with peace. But uh, I agree. I think I'm more confident in Modi than Imran Khan. Not because my surname is Modi. <laughs> well, uh, I was going to accuse you of that bias. Uh, but how did you start working in peace building? You have a degree in literature, right? English literature. So how did that sort of transition I guess do you want the academic uh, reasons or the personal one both okay so this is sort of funny I've even written about it before Hmm. but as a kid when people would ask me when you grew up where would you like to go and I said Pakistan it was the weirdest thing for an Indian now child to say, Now on Twitter, right? if you said that, you would get, get sent to Pakistan. People would send you tickets. Uh, I think I'd like to go to New York instead of Lahore, though I love Lahore <laughs> a lot. But still, anyway. So, uh, yeah, that was the thing. And um, when I was in second grade, the Hindu-Muslim riots of 92-93 were happening. Hmm. That left a significant imprint on my mind. Even as um, I was transitioning from school to college, the Gujarat riots happened. So... Hmm. There was somewhere the sense of, you know, we talk about India as a country where people live together, yet there has been so much violence in the name of religious identities. Mm. And as someone who's been wanted to be an educator since grade one, uh, I was thinking from an early time, like, what might it mean to be a teacher and also to address this? Okay. But I think it took a lot of time to crystallize. Mm. I was a school teacher in 2012 okay. when... Um, Uh, The school I used to teach at was part of this project called Exchange for Change. Hmm. And uh, children from India and Pakistan got an opportunity to write letters to each other, meet each other. Hmm. And I was one of those school teachers who went from India to Pakistan with the kids. Okay. And how old were these kids? They were in 8th, 9th and 10th grade. Okay. Uh, So, let's say 14, 15? Hmm. 15, 16 maybe. Okay. And uh, this the story behind that is also a little weird because... uh, the history department head of the school was chosen to go and her um, uh, in-laws very dramatically said, Our house is not Pakistan, so who will go? I was like, I will go. It's a great origin story. <laughs> yeah, so. And when I came back from that first visit in 2012, it was just five-day visit. But hmm. I had such a profound moving experience that I felt like, I needed to do something with my work as an educator that was had to move from being an English teacher to being a peace educator. Because very few Indians will ever have the opportunity to go to Pakistan if our visa rules are going to be so stringent. And um, I wanted to bring back what I'd learned and share it with uh, children, with teachers back here and see how a teacher could be involved in improving ties between both countries. And then formal training in peace and conflict resolution happened after that. Okay. So how was that visit like? Your first visit to Pakistan? Where did you go? How was it for you? What did you have in your mind before you were visiting? How did that change? There were people who were really resistant to my going. Hmm. My parents were supportive. They were worried, but they were supportive. I think they've grown used to me doing things that are unconventional. Hmm. So their uh, way of approaching everything is, 
let him do whatever he wants <laughs> our response to it is going to pray that he's safe okay Because prayers work usually <laughs> yeah they do i do believe in prayer so um and a cousin i remember a cousin of mine telling me that you have to get a really good photograph of yourself because the pakistanis will not send you back and we need something at your prayer ceremony after you die <laughs> wow. so that's the kind of uh, at uh, you know that's the kind of send off that i had okay but i had this feeling that i would have a great experience i don't know what exactly it would be like i didn't know it would be so beautiful and overwhelming hmm. let me tell you a bit about the program that Sure. This was part of. It was called Exchange for Change, mm-hmm. and the Citizens Archive of Pakistan had put it together. Okay. With a Delhi-based NGO called Roots to Roots, like R O U T E S to R O O T S. Okay. Uh, so they had organized this thing uh, with, I think, funding from the British High Commission. Okay. And uh, they were doing Pakistan, India, Pakistan, US, and Pakistan, some other place, hmm. kind of exchanges for children. All right. And. Uh, It was a bit like a junket. Okay, in what sense? Um, because we were staying at the Avari, which is fancy. So, like, mm. stay, imagine you know bringing children and teachers to stay the Taj. Oh, okay. It was a bit fancy in yeah. that sense. And where was this Lahore? Lahore. So they, but they all they were doing it for security reasons. Uh, sure. Because we had twenty-one people, including students and teachers, and they mm. needed to put us in a place where there would be high security. Mm. One of the stereotypes I carried in my mind was that a lot of women would be wearing burkas, mm. and that wasn't the case. Mm. Well, I've probably seen more burqa-wearing women in Bombay than Lahore. Hmm. So that was um, yeah. Th- that's interesting because uh, I was recently uh, planning a trip to Pakistan, um, and I was telling my mother, you know, you should come with me. So we like backpacked across Sri Lanka, and we had a great time. Hmm. And I was like, you should come with me. We'll do like Pakistan and Bangladesh as well. She was like, yeah, but I'll have to wear a burqa. And then I was like, you really don't have to. Like most of the Pakistani women I'm friends with, and I met, don't wear burqas. And it's fine but th- that's the sort of image that you have of pakistan because it's an islamic state right mm. absolutely and i think we more used to uh, muslims perform muslim identity as minorities in india mm. so we try to take that picture and uh, slap it onto other muslim countries and mm. uh, saudi arabia and pakistan are not the same I think it's important for people to know that though of course there is a lot of saudi money in pakistan yeah and creeping wahhabism but that's a different that's a security different based there's a funny thing that i read actually when i was in pakistan there's this um, artist called fazia minallah who's mm-hmm. written a lot about people and banyan trees in pakistan okay and she says that uh, there are people who've actually cut banyan and people trees in pakistan saying that they're hindu trees hmm So and they've started uh, replacing them with Saudi trees. Oh god. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because that's more like close akin to their culture. Yeah, it's crazy but the trees can't have religion, right? Yeah, th- I I hope so. I would think so. And so many Sufi shrines are under trees or around trees. Yeah. It's more of a South Asian thing than a Hindu thing, I would say. That's true. I agree with you. Um so after this visit to Lahore you did some training in peace building and Oh I forgot to tell you what the Lahore trip was about. So yes. we were actually visiting uh, schools in Lahore. Okay. And um they also wanted to show us important historical sites. Hmm. So we saw the Lahore fort, we went to Dera Sahib the Gurdwara in hmm. uh, Lahore. The schools had some things lined up for us. So one school actually had this thing which looked like a mehndi or sangeet at uh, an indian wedding okay because the kids were uh, performing a medley of bollywood songs <laughs> and they had uh, dhol players to welcome us it's it's sort of like cultural day or parents day that you have 
Yeah, so it was like shows. a five-year-old dancing to "I Want to Be Your Chhamak Chhalo," and I'm like, okay, I did not expect to be welcomed into Pakistan like that. <laughs> But I think the more poignant experience was uh, at a school assembly one morning, where uh, we heard Pakistani children sing the Indian national anthem. Okay, that was totally unexpected. You know, even now as I speak, I have goose flesh when I think of that day. Mm. So we are so used to thinking about. Pakistanis as people who hate Indians, mm. that we can't imagine they would actually put in the effort to learn the Indian national anthem. Mm. Like I have not never thought of learning the Pakistani national anthem. Have you? No, I I couldn't. I wouldn't even be able to tell the Pakistani national anthem apart from other songs. Yeah, so that was really moving, and all of us and the Indians who had gone, they were crying when we 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 mm. saw that. And the kids were holding, like one kid holding a Pakistani flag, the other kid holding an Indian flag, and there were two rows of. Indian and Pakistani flags like this, and at that time, one realizes, you know, the power of symbols. Mm. I mean, here in India, we when we you know have these debates around why play the national anthem before mm. a movie starts, mm. and we don't sometimes see the value that these uh, symbols and songs and poems carry. But mm. when one is in another country and something like that happens, it strikes you totally. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh... Most people become more nationalistic when they sort of step outside India, and in most in some most cases, I would say, because that becomes part of your identity, right? Your larger identity is that you are Indian, and therefore these symbols that mean very little to you mm. when you're home suddenly start to take a larger context. I think. Yeah, but some of it uh, seems false, also, right? Like, um, I mean, I remember going to. Um, It's also being an Indian in Pakistan is so different from being an Indian in the US. Hmm. I remember going to the Seeds of Peace camp in 2014. Okay. Where, where is this? Uh this is in Maine. Okay. So the Seeds of Peace camp in Maine has been happening for several years. Mm-hmm. They bring together high school students from India, Pakistan, uh Afghanistan, Israel, Palestine, Egypt, Jordan and USA. Okay. And I was uh, one of the delegation leaders. So hmm. there are two educators chosen every year from India who go with the students. Hmm. Um we met the Pakistani delegation in Dubai itself because the flight from Dubai to Boston was going to be the same for both of us. Huh. And when we went to Boston the US delegation and the Middle East delegation saw the Pakistanis and the Indians getting along so well right because we had already spoken to each other and, and hmm. we shared so much in common and you know Bollywood conversation and all that. Yeah. And they were like why are you here there is no conflict between you. <laughs> So to the it's also different now like how, where are you as an mm. indian because uh, being in pakistan you're also thinking of uh, oh i'm in like enemy country or hostile territory mm. at least yeah i i think at the end of the day when you go to a place like the us you're suddenly just reduced to brown people in mm. one sense uh, I, i remember when i was there last year um a bunch of uh, so i was at a program with uh, indians pakistanis and nepalis mm. and one night we were all going um to someone's house for a party and each mm. of us had to bring like someone from an other nationality to come with us mm. so the person who i got was costa rican uh, his name is ernie and um you know how when you put like brown people in a bus we all start singing at one point yes um, so i was translating every song to my friend and then he was just like how do all of you know the lyrics is there some sort of thing that happens to you but i thought you your countries were at war and i was trying to sort of explain to him that our countries 
were in a state of conflict mm-hmm. with each other but most people grow up in circumstances that are peaceful and therefore we share a lot of each other's cultures if that mm-hmm. made sense i think bollywood might have uh, done a lot for diplomacy between india and pakistan and mm-hmm. it probably should be studied in depth yeah I mean, not just from the economics angle, of course, and, you know, like Indian films have a huge market in Pakistan, mm-hmm. but also the fact that uh, uh, the actors in Indian movies come from uh, fairly diverse backgrounds mm-hmm. as far as religion goes. So, um, so when one is looking at Bollywood, one isn't really thinking of like Indian as Hindu and Pakistan mm-hmm. as Muslim, right? Yeah. That binary is uh, mm-hmm. challenged by Bollywood, I think. Yeah, I'm not saying Bollywood is nuanced, okay? <laughs> I would be the last person to agree with the idea that Bollywood is nuanced. But uh, But I did like Bajrangi Bhaijaan. Uh, I think that is something that we are never going to agree on. <laughs> Just personally, I apologize. Um but you know, all of this drives back to the point that you would think that people in India have a profound mistrust of each other and I think in a lot of cases it's true. just this seems like a self evident question but why do people have such a mistrust towards each other on both sides of the border mm, i think the mistrust is learned hmm. in families that have experienced the partition uh, i'm sure people grew up with stories of uh, grandparents who were hurt in some way hmm. or even killed uh, during that time and uh, there is a lot of literature on intergenerational trauma and i think that's something to think about mm-hmm. you know when uh, we talk about india pakistan relations and we talk about policy and war and all of that we don't talk about the psychological aspect of it mm-hmm. but i think that is definitely something to be thought about and um, i think it's also the education system plays a significant role right mm-hmm. when we learn about um, the freedom struggle or the independence movement the muslim league sort of just appears at some point of time we don't really i mean i didn't really learn more about the context in which mm. that emerged mm. or how the muslim league and the hindu mahasabha uh, interacted with each other mm. and what was jinnah doing uh, i mean we just think of him as a villain figure mm. but uh, he had close ties with nehru and gandhi and various other people in that movement and uh, how did he contribute mm. what what was ikbal doing and you know how how did he come to write um, sari jahan se acha hmm. and then become the national poet of pakistan hmm. so these are questions that we don't encounter much uh, and we just thought that these are enemy countries uh, there isn't i don't think there is much of a space to uh, look at the gray areas hmm. or even uh, look at the fact that there was no consensus really on you know uh having this kind of separation mm. um i reviewed this book for pragati i can't remember the name right now but it's about uh, the partition i can't remember the title right now but uh, the 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 subheading is muslims against the muslim league okay uh i can't remember the title but anyway what mm. i was the broader point was that uh, the kind of rhetoric we hear now about you know muslims being or kashmiris being mm. told to go to pakistan it seems like um there was this unanimous decision mm. made at that time that mm. you know one country is for muslims one country is for hindus and uh, firstly children are not allowed to question much in our education system so even if they have those questions and they think that the textbook is talking bullshit they can't say it 
but even the teacher who wants to say it would be afraid because you know what if someone's going to report them yeah yeah there's going to be a backlash against the exactly. teacher who says Pakistanis are not bad they're just people like you and me I'm I'm going to guess that there will be backlash and I think the I think media contributes usually to right mm. I mean who are the people who are invited to uh shows about India Pakistan relations hmm. typically these are people who are shouting very much yeah and uh, are saying unko karara jawab dena hai let's give them a hmm. tough answer kind of thing we don't really uh, hear too many um, peace activists or educators hmm. or even dip- sane diplomats hmm. on these shows yeah i think um, i i would agree with you i think the legacy of partition is something that we haven't dealt with as mm-hmm. a country it's something that uh, people have tried to document and that's about it but they don't i think consider as you said the intergenerational trauma that comes with it um something that i wonder often about is how do um not all states went through the trauma of partition so how do people in the south for example um reckon with it how do they perceive it um what sort of things do they think about pakistan when it comes to the fall because they seem to share the same mistrust as people elsewhere in the country um which would then drive into your second point that says that you know these are uh i don't know if we can call them mistakes but these are the narratives that mm. our history textbooks are feeding us and it clearly villainizes one over the other and i'm sure this is not something that's restricted to india alone mm. um when i remember reading this article that compared history textbooks uh between india and pakistan and mm. uh they shared profoundly different things about the same history of the subcontinent um and so they were talking about how um in pakistan for example most of medieval india they don't talk uh, about any of those kingdoms uh, they just start with the muhammad of ghazni the muhammad of ghori and then go hmm. onwards from there with muhammad bin qasim yeah uh, all of that um and then they go with mughal india whereas yeah. indian history will give you half a paragraph on some 13 illustrious kingdoms from across the country and then leave it at that but i don't know as an educator how do you think you know what can historians do to sort of make uh, these various histories more accessible to children how can you build different narratives and allow space for people to say there are different versions of the truth and they'll always sort of be contentious if that makes sense yeah it does i think historians are already doing educators are already doing hmm. um uh there was this beautiful uh, ncert textbook which had a chapter on partition hmm. and i remember professor anil sethi uh, who was earlier at uh, delhi university and then at azim premji university worked on that chapter okay what's beautiful about it is that he did field work in pakistan when he was writing this chapter for an indian government textbook hmm. and the chapter begins with three narratives which were oral history narratives that he collected while working at the archive hmm. and uh, that gives students um an entry point into learning about the event through a much broader lens hmm. uh there are comparisons between the partition and the holocaust in that mm. particular chapter uh, it also um has a large section on uh, gender and violence which draws heavily in urvashi butalia's work mm. in the other side of silence and uh, i think this is new stuff uh, i haven't seen indian textbooks venturing into uh, these spaces before and for a government textbook to do that is uh, 
quite surprising and remarkable i would i don't know how long it's going to remain that way but um there's definitely something to look at and i think we also miss regional narratives as you were saying mm. so um you know like the, i think you were referring to the work of the history project when you mentioned comparative uh, uh yeah yeah that text, was the history yeah, project comparative analysis of textbooks yeah. so i think the history project has done i think the intention is good to see how one event is covered in an indian textbook and a pakistani textbook but the examples they've selected are the worst examples of indian textbooks mm. i think because they were not able to find good examples of pakistani textbooks <laughs> <laughs> so uh i think there's also a danger in saying that there's one event there's a pakistani view of it and there's mm. an indian view of it because there are multiple views in india and in pakistan right yes. so um if you look at a textbook in uh, gujarat might be different from a textbook in kashmir because our country is so huge of course one can debate whether kashmir is part of india or not but like that can be a later debate yeah and also diversity in terms of like whether a school is using a textbook by a private publisher is it mm. using a government textbook um is it an ib school that allows the teacher to create their own curriculum so i have been invited by history teachers into their class and when i've gone to a school that follows an ib curriculum um i've been able to bring uh, oral histories into the classroom mm. uh these could be videos these could be um, a graphic novel based on the experience of partition these could be art objects this could actually be a skype conversation with a pakistani author mm. so those are experiences that textbooks can't make possible mm. but if there are schools that have the willingness or the resources mm. that can happen yeah that sounds lovely um something that i've wondered is mm. how do uh, children respond to this uh, because a lot of them as we said grew up with this intergenerational trauma right so um and this is essentially the idea that um their frameworks are sort of being contradicted i guess of what they've been taught to believe so how do children i know as young as 13 14 i'm guessing is what you've been teaching how do they respond to what you're telling them about pakistan and what's happening on the other side so when i'm doing peace education workshops i'm typically not telling children hmm. but i'm offering activities okay. that involve them in speaking to each other or responding to maybe a video clip that i'm showing them or involving them in a theater exercise that they have to debrief um sometimes these kids are middle and high school but sometimes they've been younger okay uh i think i just respond to an invitation from a school and see what to do hmm. um what i like to do i mean when i began when i just came back from pakistan i was full of enthusiasm saying that you know i will be this peace monger mm-hmm. <laughs> who will uh do all i can to make change people's ideas because there's so much hate uh it's taken me some time to um calm down a bit and meet people where they are instead of uh, focusing so much on what i want them to think hmm. i think that can be um self defeating in some way uh because people want a chance to articulate their hate hmm. their anxiety their um confusions and uh, good pedagogy makes space for that hmm. um otherwise it become becomes another sort of propaganda right so they might listen to you because they are meant they're supposed to listen to an adult in the class mm. but that may not really have an impact on their heart and mind mm. so um i don't uh, stop anyone from saying they hate pakistan if they want to they can say that 
but then they've got to justify where they do. So I say, okay, you think like this about Pakistan. Where did, where did you hear this? Or who said this to you? Have you read a book where you've come across this? Hmm. That helps us get to the source of where it came from. Hmm. And then I ask them, okay, so you have heard all of this on TV. Have you ever seen Pakistani coverage of the same news? They're like, no, why would I see Pakistani coverage? Hmm. I said, don't you think people on the same side might not be seeing Indian coverage and might be hating Indians the same way? So when we engage in a process like that, I think um, there's an opening up hmm. that doesn't happen if we go with the assumption that these are bigoted individuals hmm. and I am the one who's thinking right. I have come to reform them. Hmm. I think peace ed- educators need to uh, be a little more humble hmm. and it's taken some beating <laughs> to realize that. Um, I think um, even among children from... Um, Partition families have noticed different responses. The, mm-hmm. There are ch- children who are very excited about the prospect of visiting the place where their grandfather or grandmother spent their childhood. Mm. And there are some people who have um, begun to hate that country so much that they don't want to have anything to do with the place uh, that is a memory of pain for their family. Mm. Uh, It also depends so much on how adults present the history, right? Mm. Um, There are people, there are children who come from well-off families that have traveled to maybe Dubai or uh, America, Australia, Europe, Mm. and they have interacted with Pakistanis there. So that first-hand interaction Mm. uh, is very different from seeing a Pakistani only on a TV channel. Mm. So there might be people who have only seen Fawad Khan and Hafiz Saeed. So that's mm. the idea of Pakistan, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, one is a film star and the other is a terrorist. But mm. what about the ordinary Pakistani like you and me? Mm. Um, so I think that's something uh, that has an impact on people's uh, understanding. Also, I think there are certain qualities, right? I mean, and this doesn't have to do about Indian or Pakistani. I think there are some people who are scared of difference. Mm. And there are some people who approach difference with curiosity. Mm. So I have this theater exercise where I place a vacant chair in front of the students. And I ask them to imagine there's a Pakistani sitting there. Mm. They can assign whatever age, gender, sexual orientation, profession, all sorts of identity markers that they want to attach to them. And have a conversation with them. So they can say anything that they want to. They can just interact through gestures. They can ask mm-hmm. questions. And it's really interesting to observe who they imagine to be in the chair. Okay. Is there a general trend of who they imagine it to be? or No, it's, it's diverse. Mm-hmm. And um, there have been times when they imagine a general sitting there. Mm-hmm. And I, when I ask them, okay, why are you imagining a general? Because they associate Pakistani with army-run state. Mm. So that's their imagination. There are, there are people who might imagine a ch- school child in Pakistan. Because mm. mm. they're like, okay, my experience is that of a child going to school, so I'm going to imagine someone on that side. Mm. And I'll ask him, like, do you have, you know, do you go with a gun to school? Mm. Th- that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I've also had, so I do this exercise where it's open and they can attach the identity marker. Mm-hmm. And then I began to attach that. So I say, okay, so imagine the Pakistani sitting in front of you is a 70-year-old grandmother. Mm-hmm. 
So the person who was earlier really angry and was questioning the general and saying like, why have you come to India? Hmm. This same person goes and touches the feet of that lady. Hmm. Because like, what do you do to a grandmother? You touch their feet and seek blessings. Hmm. So in that, through that activity, the process of humanization happens in a way hmm. that cannot happen through lecturing. That's very powerful. Uh, the exercise, just as you describe it, sounds yeah. very powerful. Thank you. Was that also true for you when you interacted with Pakistanis for the first time? Um, did you have, did they change the way you looked at them as people? Um, I went with the idea that I was going to have a good time and that I would be welcomed. So it was not uh, that drastic for me. Hmm. But uh, I've seen attitudes of people around me change. Hmm. So I remember that... Um, I told you my mother was a little worried about me going to Pakistan, yeah. right? I think she was more worried because like relatives made her worry more about hmm. me. Uh, that's family yeah, in India. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> South Asian families. Yeah. So uh, I think this was my second or third trip to Pakistan. Okay. And uh, a friend of mine had taken me to visit this uh, Jain neighborhood in Rawalpindi. My family happens to be Jain. Okay. And, um, you know, we tend to think of uh, partition typically as a Hindu-Muslim event. And we don't think of um, that much. We think of the Sikhs, yes, but we, we don't think uh, so much of the Jains, the Buddhists, the Parsis. The Christians. The Christians, the atheists, <laughs> the agnostics and the Jews yeah. uh, who were probably affected by partition. So he took me to that uh, Punjabi Jain neighborhood mm. and he also gave me a framed photograph of uh, this sign that said Jai Janendra, which is like a Jain greeting, which is mm. from a Jain temple. And mm. I brought that back home. And my mother was really touched to see that, right? As something like, so for her, her being Jain is really important. Mm. And then, you know, that was coming together with something that was really important to me, which was like this cross-border friendship and peace. And uh, yeah, so I've had seen people feeling differently or, you know, when someone has sent like a char or chutney from hmm. the other side and then my mom's like sharing it with her neighbors and relatives and saying, okay, look what my son got from there. <laughs> and earlier though, there was so much anxiety about like, will you get vegetarian food there? Hmm. So things change. Because I have never been to Pakistan, will you get vegetarian food there? <laughs> <laughs> you do get vegetarian food in Pakistan. I don't think the variety is as huge as hmm. India. So, uh, Pakistani friends of mine who are vegetarian um, love the food here. Okay. Uh, I remember going to a pizza place in Pakistan once and they had one vegetarian pizza. I said, this is terrible. Like, why would I want to be here? We have just one kind of pizza. <laughs> but uh, to be honest, when I've been in Pakistan, my heart has been so full that I haven't thought that much about my tummy. That's really sweet. <laughs> but, but Pakistanis love feeding people and... Mm. It's so common for Indian guests to be given two breakfasts, two lunches, two dinners and multiple uh, like lassies and uh, dessert in between. So they were quite upset. They, that you they were not they, having two breakfasts, two lunches, two dinners? They felt that they could not extend the full range of the hospitality to me. Ah, okay. Uh, but that's interesting. <laughs> Tell me more about your experiences visiting Pakistan. Sure. What were all the cities that you visited? I visited Lahore, Karachi, Islamabad and Rawalpindi. Okay. We have this uh, ridiculous city-specific visa policy between our countries. So even if you get a visa to go to Pakistan, if you're an Indian getting a visa to go to Pakistan or if you're a Pakistani getting a visa to come to India, 
you get a specific number of cities to go to mm. and you can't go to any other yeah in india it's only bombay and delhi right i mean pakistanis coming uh, to india i think can we there are pakistani it? authors who go to literature festivals in kolkata and bangalore okay that's good to know uh, because i have some pakistani friends and i was telling them at some point that they should come to chennai uh, where i'm from and they were like i'm not sure we'll be able to get a visa to chennai but and then that struck me uh just very personally because mm. i didn't uh, i felt like my hospitality then mm. won't be sort of i couldn't extend that to them yes. right the mahindra united world college in pune has had uh, two pakistani students or at least at least one that i know of mm. but yeah at this point let's take a break this is the amazing story of something awesome once chuck decided to start a podcast and so he did the end Okay that is a crappy story but I've got some really cool stories over at my new show The Origin of Things on this podcast I look at the stories of how brands came into being and sometimes evolved out of quite unexpected circumstances and to make it really fun I reveal the name of the brand and sometimes a category only at the very end the show is 5 to 7 minutes per episode and perfect for trivia junkies and brand nerds especially those with short attention spans New episodes out every Wednesday on IVM podcast app or website or any podcast app or site that you happen to prefer. End of story they lived happily ever after. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsini Hariharan. So you visited all these cities visited res- all these despite cities. this stupid city specific visa rule. Um and what was the difference between the cities? How were they? Um My favorite is Lahore. Why? Uh Punjabis have this saying I I don't speak Punjabi well so I will not try to say it because uh, it'll like uh, you know Punjabis will come and gag me. So basically <laughs> there's this um uh, saying that if you haven't seen Lahore you're not born. But it's I mean that's literal. Uh if you just take the meaning of it, it means like you haven't lived if you haven't seen Lahore. Mm. I would say uh well that's not fully true but it is certainly a place worth seeing um it was the cultural capital hmm. of punjab in that time and um it is fairly diverse you know one of the things that really surprised me when hmm. i went to lahore the first time they took us to the lahore fort hmm. which has a plaque saying lahore is named after love who was ram's son in ramayan <laughs> i was like okay i was not expecting this <laughs> and they said kasur the other city was named after kush oh Okay. I don't know about the historicity of this hmm. but the fact that despite the ghettoization in our minds hmm. um there are evidences of a history that is more diverse than we imagine hmm. and uh, even uh, you know uh, more recently reading about the buddhist history of what is now called pakistan I think that's been more exciting to me because um I've been ex- exploring buddhist practice more and more and it just um, uh makes me think about what it would be like if uh, india and pakistan began to explore buddhist pilgrimage as a way of uh, mm. cultural diplomacy and how um that would open up so many avenues of um interaction and even revenue generation for both countries i mean we are already exploring like the you know the kartarpur corridor mm. which is uh, the announcement has happened recently and for uh, buddhist pilgrims to be going from here 
I think that would be fantastic. But anyway, coming back to your question about what the cities were like, <laughs> so I know I get car- carried away. I get so emotional That's about this topic. That's completely fine. So the, typically, um, analogies are drawn between Lahore and Delhi, hmm. um, Karachi and Mumbai. Hmm. I did enjoy Karachi, but my friends were more worried about my safety in Karachi than in Lahore. Oh, is it that Karachi is a more unsafe city? Uh, I wouldn't make such a generalization, but okay. I've heard more people in Karachi talking about their experience of getting mugged than in Lahore. Oh, okay. And Karachi is in Sindh. Karachi is in Sindh, yes. Okay. Uh, the food in Karachi is a lot more diverse, so you'll get. I think you'll get more vegetarian food in Karachi. Okay. I remember eating masala dosa in Karachi and in having imli ka sharbat, which was fantastic. <laughs> I did not think that that would be the thing that you do in Karachi, eating a masala dosa. Did it do any justice to my South Indian roots? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> and even the pav bhaji was really bad in Lahore, mm. but. Um, I can imagine the Pakistanis listening to the <laughs> to this podcast go like, yeah, Chintan, come to our country, eat our food and then go back and visit. <laughs> no, I think what I enjoyed most in mm-hmm. Pakistan was the homemade food. Mm-hmm. Because I remember very distinctly uh, this experience of going to a friend's home in Karachi. Okay. And her mother told me that she grew in uh, what was called United Provinces back then, mm-hmm. right? Now, UP, mm-hmm. uh, Uttar Pradesh. And she tried to recall what her Hindu neighbor used to cook. And mm. she made those dishes for me because I'm vegetarian. I think that was uh, like completely out of the world. I mean, you couldn't, you you can't compare a hotel meal to mm. something someone has made with so much love and mm. because of Hindustan se hai, mm. right? Actually, because of Hindustan se hai was something that a security guard at the Lahore, uh, National College of Arts in Lahore told me. Okay. He said, why don't you come to my house? I live in Nankana Sahib, which is the uh, birthplace of Guru Nanak. Mm. And, you know, if you have a visa to Lahore, you can't go to Nankana, though mm. it's like 45 minutes, I think, away, mm. far away from uh, away from there. So I said, I won't be able to go for that reason. But uh, you're like, you're so kind. Thank you. Mm. And he said, OK, you Hindustan se I have to um, bring you something. So he made my friend and me sit there and he brought us ice cream. Oh, that's really sweet. And how, yeah, which makes me wonder, how did people react to you being from India in Pakistan through your trips? A lot of people just assumed I'd be vegetarian because, so it's like Indian is equal to Hindu is equal to vegetarian. Uh, Which is a connection one would not make in India, right? Yeah. I would not not make that. I would not make that. I would not assume that someone who is Indian uh, is vegetarian. Mm. And of course, Indian is equal to Hindu is completely out of question. Mm. Uh, so um, that was interesting to notice mm. and I think even um, when I went on the school trip the first time um, there were Pakistani teachers who were asking some of the Indian teachers why don't you wear bindis because mm. their idea of the Indian woman was the star plus soap opera <laughs> woman so they were expecting sari, sari and bindi yes ah. so that was odd for them because they were wearing salwar kameezes mm. um, the food that I really enjoyed in Pakistan mm was something called Alu Bukhari Ki Chutney. Okay. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> so, Alu Bukhari is a plum, right? Yeah. And I, this was again, like the regular Alu Bukhari Ki Chutney that you'll find in a hotel is different from the one made by a friend's mum. Hmm. So, I remember that very well. Hmm. I remember going to Anarkali Bazaar in Lahore at 3 a.m. and having the kulfi. Um, I remember having the langar meal at... Uh, Gurdwara Dera Sahib in Lahore. So those were special. Yeah, it, it really sounds lovely. Uh, yeah. So after I was doing this for a while, going to schools and doing workshops and interactions, 
um i decided to well not really formalize it but to just think of a framework that would give it more strength at least in my mind okay. so i started this initiative called friendships across borders okay and the desi name was our dosti kare hmm um the idea initially was to collect stories of indians and pakistanis who had become friends either because they had studied together or met at a conference or just become friends online hmm. because a lot of indians and pakistanis are becoming friends online right yeah yeah you don't need to apply to the ministry of hmm. external affairs to become twitter friends or yeah. facebook friends thankfully <laughs> and uh, with technology i think people are getting access so much access to each other's lives even without hmm. having physically meet yeah. have met so i was recording some of those stories and then um doing more workshops with schools mm. i'm not doing as many right now but i think um people did begin to show interest and uh, mm. sometimes teachers uh, were responding to um, events that they saw on the news which they mm. felt had to be responded to so i remember there was a lot of um, violence happening against kashmiris in some part of india at some point of time uh-huh. and there was a school teacher who wanted me to come at that time and mm. then talk about my visits to pakistan mm. and um, there was an army kid in that class mm. so he began talking about how easy it is for people from non army families to mm. say that we should teach them a lesson and we should you know destroy mm. them but uh, they don't understand the emotional cost to children like him mm. who actually have to think of whether their father or uncle or older brother or um grandfather will come back hmm. yeah of course i mean like there should be mother grandmother aunt as well <laughs> right sister, uh, that's but... a limitation of uh, the army but that's actually a really interesting point how do you deal with narratives of hate primarily but also of propaganda of um signaling of strategy that primarily comes from state sources that are of course amplified by the media um you know how do you how do you personally contend with them how do you uh, i don't know initiate dialogue about uh, what happens particularly with respect to conflict right every mm-hmm. year something that happens is when the snow melts mm-hmm. uh, across the borders at the LOC there will be or there will always be some reports of insurgency something or the other mm-hmm. will happen and this is when the media will be on both sides i'm ge- guessing will be at peak uh, we should bomb the country or mm-hmm. you know we should teach them a lesson sort of mentality something will come up every single year so how do you deals with these narratives of hate I think the people peddling narratives of hate often don't have any skin in the game. Mm. Right? And uh it's easy to uh perpetuate these because you know that uh, you're pretty safe in your air conditioned office. Of course we are recording in an air conditioned office, but <laughs> the point is different here. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope we have skin in the game. <laughs> yes, we do. Um go back to the question <laughs> <laughs> no the question was how do you deal with narratives of hate how do i deal with narratives of hate i think um the activist response is to typically meet hate with hate hmm. and that is what makes me uncomfortable i am hmm. uh, not trying to decry or diminish the importance of what activists hmm. have done but i tend to identify as a peace educator not as a peace activist because i feel like hate should have a chance to express itself hmm. in a non violent manner okay 
so that we can understand where it comes from because when we don't understand where it comes from how do we even re- respond to it it's mm. often coming from a wounded place mm. and it's not necessarily coming from an evil place mm. I, i i don't believe in good and evil narratives i i mean, though i went to a catholic school and there is where there is a tendency to uh, you know like collapse the world into these binary mm. categories but um, i think uh, this is not just about india and pakistan but even when we looking at the um, the polarization of discourse in our country i think mm. uh, it's become so difficult for people to uh, be friends with or to date or even to hook up with mm. uh, people who uh, vote for another party and why yeah, is that yeah. so right mm. uh, I think we have a very difficult time separating ideas from people, and we place ideas above people in a lot of cases. And well, some would say ideas make people people. Yeah. So how do you then separate the two? How do you separate narratives from people who believe them? Because at the end of the day, the personal is political, right? So. Um, so I, I will give you another example, which is okay. not related to India and Pakistan, mm-hmm. but um, I have a very dear friend who is Jewish. Mm-hmm. I did not know that he identifies as Zionist until very recently. Hmm. Is that going to undo all the warmth I felt for him all of these years? No. Hmm. Uh, which means I have to grapple with the complexity of this person. Hmm. Similarly, there are cousins, there are family members who um believe in ideologies that one might not believe in yeah is yeah. one going to say like let's cut off all ties because mm-hmm. i think it comes from a very purest sort of response i think mm-hmm. it imagines that you know uh, i mean i don't know what the english expression for this is but hum to doodh ke dhule hue hain you know it's like that kind of approach <laughs> yeah, right yeah, yeah. like there's everything perfect about me mm-hmm. everybody else needs to be fixed yeah and if one go, is going to take that approach one will keep eliminating people from one's life mm-hmm. and eventually be left alone because nobody can be exactly like you but that's fair and when you take that back to sort of the india pakistan context how mm. do you like delineate between um the people who are peddling these narratives the people who have skin in the game uh, and the people who are sort of just consuming all of these narratives because they're all very intertwined right and um i don't know at least with me i i am one of those people who say there's a difference between a government and its people so what civil society does on its own time can't really um can't be reflected by what the government does um if that makes sense yeah and uh, i would say actually this is what you are saying is something that narendra modi also said right is it oh god yeah <laughs> i share something with narendra modi ji this is great <laughs> i think he said last year that uh, we must distinguish between uh, pakistani people and the pakistani government right hmm. i would also go so far as to say distinguish between the pakistani government and the pakistani military hmm. i mean that's the complexity of this right um and i think um, i mean i don't know if it can be so simplistic again like there's a tendency when uh, indians and pakistanis get together at a peace conference to say you know either blame it all on the british hmm. or the americans <laughs> or, the or the chinese oh. <laughs> or their own governments but uh, of course we also messed up right and hmm. it's our ancestors who've also messed up hmm. so i think we can't uh, it's it's easy to like distract from that and say let's separate but it's not like all civil society is pro engaging with the other country right that's true um it, because with the civil society is not a uniform homogenous space it's not like all mm. activists 
uh, who work. I mean, it's not like all activists are united. Even there are activists who work on different causes. I remember um, being part of this delegation that went mm-hmm. to Kashmir uh, shortly after Burhan Bani's killing. Okay, and um, this was a group of journalists, activists, uh, photographers, uh, various people, and. there were activists who were telling kashmiri people that they should align with other movements and struggles in india hmm and they were like but we are not indians <laughs> why should we align <laughs> with your struggles hmm so uh while it sounds funny it makes sense in some way because hmm. um we assume that you know everybody who is in associated with social and political movements hmm and has a problem with the state is automatically together mm. and that's not true there are people who may fight for adivasi rights mm. but that does not mean that um, they believe that uh, kashmiris have the right to self determination mm. or um, there might be people who work for queer rights mm. and are very islamophobic mm. Yeah, uh, I've heard of some of these narratives as well, and uh, people assume that first they think that anything that's protesting against the state is the left. Uh, mm. They may, and this is particularly true of mainstream media, where they mm. say, "Oh, the left is saying this, and these leftists are arguing," but they forget that there is a lot of intersectionality. There is also not a lot of intersectionality, and you can't just put everyone across a spectrum of political beliefs into sort of one group. and there are leftists who are fighting uh, the caste system but totally benefiting from uh, it right yeah yeah that's there and uh, i think also um, our media uses the words left and liberal interchangeably i think that's really stupid i mean i am part of media you're part of media <laughs> but yeah like let's acknowledge that i completely agree there are a huge range of issues that the media can be accused of particularly when it comes to agenda setting right there was this um, theory in international relations that liberals particularly championed that said that democracies do not go to war with each other mm. because uh, but uh, with their own citizens maybe yeah but their point was that you know democracies are made up of uh, people who are electing governments and people are fundamentally peaceful and people will not want to go to war with other people but if you take an example of any conflict just between india and pakistan people want war after you know pulwama for example you could see all these people on whatsapp groups suddenly bursting out with self righteous rage from i don't know where but uh, you could see that sort of belief that people fundamentally do not have war is not i don't know a true narrative is not representative i guess of uh, realities i think yeah i think it's easy to blame uh, the politicians and the Arnab Goswami's of the world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like oh, they are the bloodlusting people and they are the war mongers. Mm. Uh, but um, examine the stance of people who say that there should be dialogue and peace between India and Pakistan. Where do they stand on capital punishment? Mm. So you might not have bloodlust on a particular issue, but you might want to kill people for another reason. Mm. And I think it's really important that we examine. where is this um, desire for punishing people in a certain way coming from mm. i think we we talk very little about restorative justice in our country and when we think of justice we typically equate it with retribution mm. 
uh and i think um, yeah that's something we're talking about also uh, since we're talking about liberals have you come across this book called peace love and liberty by um Tom Palmer? No, I haven't. I was reading it recently and I think it's fantastic because it talks about how um it makes an economic argument for peace. Okay. And it says if you're trading with someone, hmm. you're not likely to harm them. Yeah, this is the idea that two countries that have McDonald's do not necessarily go to war with each other. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't heard uh, of that one. Yeah, it's just what of those uh, it's another liberal theory that Maybe we can have dhabas instead of McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. India, Pakistan. It, it, it would be much better food, I'm sure. Uh but what do people then do? What can citizens do? Like ordinary people uh do to sort of ensure peace? How can they be better citizens? I don't know if that would even equate like if it would mean being better citizens. But okay, let me rephrase that. The, what can people do fundamentally um if they want peace between two countries, if they want peace within their country, what should they do? Well, um one of the ways uh could be to read more uh, fiction from pakistan mm-hmm. uh i think when we engage with stories uh we tend to connect uh, better with people and their realities and one might say okay but you know like literature is not really true stories but i don't i think that's a silly argument mm-hmm. i'm not saying that only as someone who studied literature mm-hmm. but um not everyone is going to read a journal article right mm. on india pakistan relations they might actually watch a pakistani tv show mm. or they might read a novel by a pakistani author mm. they might listen, uh, watch coke studio mm. um and i think popular culture can have a huge impact in uh, changing how we view um the so called enemy country I think that's something uh, people can definitely do mm-hmm. uh, and share that kind of stuff with their friends. Uh the other is to uh actively seek out uh, and participate in initiatives that are working for peace between India and Pakistan. Uh, Aghazi Dosti has been doing some really good work. Okay. Um they have been bringing out a calendar every year which has uh, paintings by children from both countries. Mm. That, that sounds lovely. Uh, yeah, they also organize Skype conversations between children and teachers from India and Pakistan. So that's been happening. Okay. Um and I think this initiative is particularly significant because a lot of these exchanges are very elite exchanges, right? Mm. Like the tier 2 to tier 3 dialogues. Mm. Uh even the one calls it peace building and conflict transformation one says there are multiple stakeholders but you need to have connections in high places to be invited to these things, mm. right? Yeah. Um and one imagines that things will trickle down but most people don't even write about their experiences after coming from such a thing hmm. it just becomes something to put on their cv put on their cv yes so i think um, that's there also um social media i think is making this process so much more organic i think mm. uh people who are not calling not even calling themselves peace builders are um becoming friends with people uh, mm. on facebook twitter instagram Hmm. And just following someone's social media account is giving them access to what life is like on the other side. Hmm. I think um, the beauty of social media is that you don't necessarily even need to have planned initiatives. People will do what they have to with it. Hmm. Yeah, and that would be sort of more organic, I guess, more natural maybe. Yeah. Uh so this is my last question. Oh, we done uh, already. <laughs> yeah. Uh if for someone who wants to know more um about 
peace building uh, between India and Pakistan, about, I don't know, just relations between India and Pakistan. What resources would you recommend? What books would you recommend that they start with? Uh, what age are you looking at? Uh, through the ages, assume that the average listener of the show is 24 years old. <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and but the 24-year-old might have siblings who are younger. Yeah. Okay. So then give me like resources for different age groups. What okay. would you recommend for children? What would you recommend for adults? I really like using this book called Mukund and Riyas by okay. Nina Sabnani. Okay. Um, it was made as a film and became a book after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nina Sabnani is um, an animator, uh, filmmaker who lives in um, Mumbai. Mm-hmm. Her father, I think, was uh, six years or eight years old uh, when he had to migrate uh, from Karachi to Mumbai. Okay. And the stories around that. Ah, okay. So it's about Mukund and Riyaz, these two kids who go to the same school, they love playing cricket. And one day when they're at school, hmm. they hear that there's this violence and uh, they have to escape. Hmm. The Hindu family is helped by a Muslim family to disguise themselves. Hmm. And they say bye to each other on a ship. I mean, as they board the ship. Mm. So I like to share the short film with students Mm. and uh, get them to respond. And it connects with people at various levels, not just the partition bit, but also there are students who, I mean, there are children who've had the experience of moving cities because Mm. their parents have transferable jobs. Or some child and this friend of theirs decided to go to another school. Mm. So... Separation and loss as a theme is something that people are able to um, connect with. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That book is something I recommend. Um, okay. And for adults? I would really recommend Urvashi Butalia's The Other Side of Silence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a very significant book. Uh, I love Urvashi Butalia's book mm-hmm. uh, because it takes into account the gender dimension of partition. Okay. And um, that is something that's not much talked about. I think... Uh, even if it's like, you know, a course design, typically mm-hmm. anything that has to do with women or gender or queer people just gets assigned in like the last week of the course, yeah, right? Yeah, or it'll be like one module that they have to finish because they had to come. Yeah, and that would be presented as the alternative reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not Recommended. A, yes, exactly. Not the way of looking at something. So this is Urvashi Butalia's? The uh, Other Side of Silence. Okay. Uh, that one. Then I love a series called A Children's History of Pakistan, okay. written by Hamida Khuro. Hmm. Um, she's no more. She was an educator and um, a politician in Pakistan okay. who decided to write these series of books for her grandchildren. Oh, wow. Okay. And there is a different book for each state in Pakistan. So hmm. There's a children's history of Punjab, a children's history of Sindh, the children's history of uh, Khabar Pakhtunkhwa. Hmm. Um, I have three or four of those books. Uh, what's beautiful about these is that they're so different from the state narratives. Mm. And um, they're far more diverse in terms of how they represent who are Pakistani. So they do not conflate Pakistani with Sunni Muslim. Mm. Uh, there are Punjabi, Jain, Buddhist and mm. Hindu histories built into these books. Oh, okay. And even I think there's there's a whole chapter on Sony Mahiwal as part of history book. Mm. I mean, it's a legend, but it's in a history book. And because I think in South Asia, legend and history and mythology is so intertwined. Mm. That I, I enjoy that book. Mm. All right. Th- those set of books. Okay. Then um, Archil Malhotra's Remnants of a Separation. Mm. Um I enjoyed Anshul's approach because um, 
she tells the story of the partition through objects that people carried with them at the time they were leaving their house oh wow and this has stories of people from both sides mm-hmm. um it would be enjoyed particularly by people who like detailed descriptions mm-hmm. of objects and also of emotional states i think typically uh when we talk about these countries this is uh, we we talk from a security studies perspective mm-hmm. right yeah yeah I have wanted to write a book I haven't found the time hmm. but I think it would be great to have a book that's funny crazy quirky where Indians and Pakistanis talk about how it what it was like to visit the other country because hmm. I think there's too much serious stuff now yeah there is a lot of serious stuff out yeah. there thank you chintan <laughs> do you have any final stories about pakistan yeah i do actually i don't know as i've visited pakistan four times uh for mainly for like uh, academic or cultural exchanges and mm-hmm. think this was the second time when um was crossing the vaga border and returning and um, the security person on the indian side asked me uh, are you an indian coming back home or are you a pakistani coming to india mm-hmm. it was really profound because even a security guard cannot tell by the way your face looks mm-hmm. whether you're indian or pakistani has to go to the document to verify who you are and um, one wonders uh, you know uh, while like traveling across countries has become so much easier and cheaper mm-hmm. from how it was a few decades ago mm-hmm. but it's also um, this kind of um, suspicion and anxiety and um, mistrust that borders and visa regimes have created mm-hmm. and i hope as we end this podcast that um, the the pe- people who are children now and you know um are going to become adults say in the next 5 10 years mm. i hope they have a lot more opportunities for indians to travel to pakistan for pakistanis to travel to india so that um the kind of hysteria the hostility that has existed for so many decades goes away mm. because uh we're not just losing so much money unnecessarily uh to keep up uh with this hatred but uh, we're just losing so many opportunities for friendships for cultural exchange to see such gorgeous places that exist in each other's countries which have been untapped by the tourism industry thankfully so far but yeah there's so much culture like i think um there are times when i am outside the country and i like to call myself south asian rather than indian mm. because um, my sense of identity is also linked to the indus valley civilization in a way right which mm. can can it really be claimed by india because mm. even pakistan claims it yeah. or the kind of folklore the stories we enjoy the the sufi and the bhakti poetry that we listen to it's not really confined to the current political entity that is india mm. it flows through um, all of south asia Okay, I'm getting really emotional now. <laughs> Let's stop this. Yeah. No, I'm not running away from emotions. Okay. <laughs> no. I don't think emotions and masculinity cannot go together. Yeah, okay, my God, I gave my gender spiel. <laughs> <laughs> no, well. Let's hope that there are fewer borders and more dialogue. But thank you so much, Intan. Thank you. For thank you, Hamsini. This was great. Yeah. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. Thank you for staying with us. I wish you a very happy Independence Week and suggest that you think a little bit more about peace and what you can do to build a better world. If you want to read more about peace building, then head over to the episode description where I've attached a bunch of resources for you. 
If you have any comments or questions, then feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at the rate Hamsini H and on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. If you're interested in the topics that States of Anarchy covers, I recommend signing up for the Takshashila Institution's online graduate certificate in public policy, where you can specialize in defense and foreign affairs. You'll get to learn what makes rich countries powerful, how to analyze and address emerging security challenges, and why diplomacy is a tool to achieve national security goals. The deadline for their next cohort is 1st September. Visit www.takshashila.org.in for more details. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you're stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune in to Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from. Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Verma, and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience, and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind, but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer.